Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona, and thanks for tuning in to another of our virtual events. And we're always delighted to have our friend Andrew Claven with us. He's going to be talking about his brand new book, The House of Love and Death. And um, I understand that Andrew's going to be signing some copies in New York for us uh, this weekend or next week, anytime soon. And uh, we'll have signed copies if you'd like to reserve one. Um, I will go ahead and put a link in the comments field. And if you have questions for Andrew, please go ahead and put them in. And Barbara will bring me back on screen towards the end of the hour. And I would be happy to ask any questions you might have. So Barbara, over to you. Thank you. It's so much fun. It's the closest I'm ever going to come to being a theatrical producer. <laughs> Summon Patrick back from the deep. It's so Shakespearean. All right. So Andrew and I have a very long time history. Andrew and Patrick and I, actually, we've been talking together about, oh, what were the balloons that just went? The balloons. Look at that. I th I'm, I'm not sure if that's coming from my side or yours. I kind of liked it. It was uh, very well, joyful. Not ours. Neither Patrick nor I knows how to do that. So. <laughs> oh, that was great. Well, mm -hmm. all right. So we're celebrating the fact that we have done lots of conversations with Andrew over the years. So just to sort of acquaint you with this, Andrew has written, let's see, one, at least two books that have been made into movies, The Crime with Clint Eastwood, True Crime with Clint Eastwood, Don't Say a Word with Michael Douglas, who I understand has just had like Hollywood's most expensive divorce or something similar. So, <laughs> Not surprise me. <laughs> you know, maybe he needs another yeah. <laughs> um, to make it. Anyway, um, he's been nominated for the Mystery Writers of America, Edgar. See Edgar right there behind me. Uh, five times and has won twice. His political satire videos have been viewed by tens of millions. And he currently does a popular podcast, The Andrew Clavin Show, at The Daily Wire. And in between, he occasionally writes a book, right? <laughs> yes, that's about it. That's about that's my life. <laughs> well, we and I'll be. And, and by the way, as Patrick said, I, I will be signing books at uh, the Mysterious Bookshop in Manhattan on Monday at six p.m. If you want to come and anyone wants to come and drop by, if they happen to be in Lower Manhattan, and uh, say hi. Very true. You can go and see Andrew live and get a book, or you can reserve one for us because the, some of the books we'll be signing Monday night will be ours, currently lurking in New York and then shipping to us. So that's exciting. Anyway, Andrew's written lots of different kinds of books, but his new character is called Cameron Winter. And this is, if I recall right, the third book with Cameron Winter. Third. Yep. Yep. So since many people watching this may, or a few people, who knows, um, may not even know about Cameron Winter and previous. Why don't we start and talk about him? Because he has a really interesting backstory. Yeah, he's a guy who is uh, who worked for the government in a very uh, shady and sinister capacity, uh, making sure that people who don't like America sort of disappeared without any fingerprints being left on them. And he's now uh, left that and felt begun to feel that he has done something unforgivable, perhaps, and he wants to find forgiveness and move forward. And he's doing that by through therapy, by trying to adjust his relationships with other human beings. But also every now and again, something happens somewhere that he sees in the newspaper or reads about or watches on, or finds out online that he just has gets, becomes obsessed with. He becomes obsessed with fixing. And sometimes it's a crime. Sometimes it's just something that's a little offbeat, something that only he sees is wrong and he becomes obsessed with going to find it out uh find out what it is and see if he can make it right and in the first book uh, he was asked actually asked by a friend to prove that a man who had confessed to murder was innocent and uh, this time out he a, he finds out that an entire family has been wiped out in a suburb of chicago in a gated very beautiful very well-to-do gated community and he goes into a small town outside of Chicago and finds it rife with corruption at every level and uh, has to sort of see if he can put this broken place back together again. So he's basically a guy who's been an anti-hero, trying to become something more like a hero uh, in a country that's unraveling around him. And I think that that's kind of the idea that I'm exploring. How do you become a good man in a, in a, at a bad time, in a bad time? I wish that you were exploring how we could make our country stop unraveling. <laughs> yeah, that would be, that would be less, <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. I have that power, yeah. Well, I wish that, I wish that you did. So I was trying to puzzle. I grew up, you know, in a community outside of Chicago called Vanetka on the North Shore, and we did have a lake view. And so since you mentioned more than once when you're describing the community that it has a lake view and, you know, wonderful trees, 
it must be on the North Shore because going south, you're going to Gary, Indiana, which was is not going to be the right landscape for this book. So what what did you, I was thinking Evanston. What did you have in mind? Lake well, I, I I won't answer that because I actually constructed it from a number of different places. The uh-huh. the the thing that I keep returning to in these books is I have what I would call niche atmospheres, places where people have made some kind of accommodation with how they want to live and it's either falling apart and work or working well and but surrounded by chaos. And so he's always going into these neighborhoods that are kind of self-contained, but they represent, they, they're infected by the chaos all around them. And I think that that's, that's this, what's happening here. This gated community should be basically impervious to crime. It should, you know, it's well protected, it's walled in. Uh, and yet somehow this evil has gotten inside and he wants to find out where it came from. I get it. It's just, and you know, you can't have a lake view if you're somewhere, you know, <laughs> in the southwest suburbs. So. I never tell, Barbara. You no, know, I know. <laughs> I was just waiting for some sort of accuracy, but there we go. Chicago, after all, is, you know, incredibly crime. It, it has been, I mean, even when I was a, a child back, you know, in the 40s and 50s, Chicago and before then, it's always had a big crime, a big crime um, reputation in um, you know, mob leaders, we all know about some of the heavy duty gangsters, always a corrupt political machine. I mean, I was so shocked. When was it? Maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I flew back to Chicago and I'm in the airport at O'Hare and said, welcome Richard Daly Mayor. And I thought, what happened here? <laughs> I'm in a time warp, you know, because Richard Daly Mayor was the mayor of Chicago when I was, you know, when I was young yeah, and I recognized yeah. it was Richard Daly junior or yet a different middle name, whatever it is. But I mean, so there's always been, you know, that idea that there were islands of safety around Chicago, but generally the whole area was, you know, fraught with corruption and danger. It's it's fascinating when you're in Chicago and, and this did play into my kind of imagining of this community. When, when you ask, say you're staying at a hotel and you say, well, how can I get to the airport? They will give you this very zigzag path to get to the airport. And you'll say, well, why do, why do I have to turn here and turn there? And they say, well, you want to avoid getting shot. And so you're kind of dancing through the high crime areas to get to the safe areas. And, you know, this, this is a difficult way to live. And I don't think it's, I, I personally don't think it's necessary. I think the fact that you have a machine, uh, Political, a political machine in charge, and it has been in charge for as long as anybody can remember, plays into this. And it's fascinating. One of the things that's absolutely fascinating to me, and it's true in San Francisco too, is as the quality of life goes down, they nobody connects it to the policies of the politicians in charge, and they never get rid of them. And it's just fascinating to me that like San Francisco, once one of the most beautiful cities in America, now is virtually unlivable. But nobody thinks to vote these guys out of office. You know, it's like it's never their fault. And so um, I, I think that single party rule is a great evil. I think it's happening in California, too. Well, I can't disagree with that. After all, I left Chicago for yeah. Walto. Uh, so, you know, when I went to San Francisco in 1958 as the Stanford freshman, it was incredibly formal. People still wore white gloves and you know, um, dressed up. For, I mean, we we dressed up to go up to the symphony on Friday nights. You wouldn't have thought for a minute about being out in, you know, without. Well, anyway, it was a very formal city. And by the time I left, Haight-Asbury had come along. And it seems to me that um, San Francisco has, it's just such a radical change. I don't think that Charleston and Boston, which were cities very similar to San Francisco in terms of you know, how old they were and how the old families were and where the money came from, the whole bit. I don't think they have changed as much as San Francisco. No, San Francisco, I, I went to school out there and I did live in San Francisco for a couple of years. And it, it's shocking what has happened to it. I mean, that that plays into the second book in the winter series, uh, A Strange yeah. Habit of Mind, part of which takes place in San Francisco. But it's kind of the, this is kind of the thing that I'm dealing with it in the books is that there's no way to set it in in modern America and say things are going great. Uh, that that would just be completely false. And so I think that I think that the state of the country, which is, you know, very precarious and very difficult, raises certain questions that other writers just aren't dealing with. And I think it has to do with who you how you behave. It's it's a really interesting question. You know, in the in the two thousands, 
I was watching TV and I suddenly realized I was in the second golden age of television. The beautiful, wonderfully written, beautifully performed shows were coming on. And they were all about evil men, the Sopranos, S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, Breaking Bad. They were all about guys who actually expressed their manhood, their admirable manhood in very not in not very admirable ways. And I had been writing characters like that in the 90s, back in the 90s when I wrote True Crime, which, as you said, was made into a, a Clint Eastwood movie. Guys who were bad guys, but their badness somehow worked for the good. And I started to think as I was watching this, as I was watching these shows, I was starting to think, well, how do you get back from this? How do you get, you know, when you outlaw masculinity, then all the men become outlaws. So how do you get to a point where you can be both a man, but also be a, a good man? And I think that that's a really difficult question in a modern in, in modern America. Very, very hard to solve. I talk to a lot of young people all the time, and they're all wrestling with just that kind of issue. Um, you know, I, I've been talking about this for years. And when I started talking about it, people would, would kind of sniff at me, you know, like, oh, we don't want men coming back. Well, yes, you do. <laughs> you know, I mean, the future, the future follows the boys. It always has, it always will. And I think that if, when you have men, what happens is when you have men who feel that they're being lied to all the time, they follow guys like Andrew Tate, who's this pimp and a woman abuser, but he speaks honestly about women and their weaknesses and their vulnerabilities. So these guys love him. These young guys love him. And you'll sit there and go, you're listening to a pimp. <laughs> you're listening to a bad guy, but they have no good guys who speak honestly to them. They've been told that virtue is a form of lying. And so it's it's it really is an interesting question. A, why so many antiheroes at this particular moment? And B, can you move from the antihero back to the idea of a hero, a guy who has chivalry inside him? I don't know. Um, we've had a wrecking ball in our midst for quite a few years, you know, shattering social norms, a steady, you know, a steady loss of civility, a steady loss of any kind of um, dialogue or even conciliation. We worked very hard to to be a place where people can come and feel safe and that it's really an entertainment. You know, I look around us at so many bookstores and their bestsellers are all very political, very, you know, activist. Um, they've had, you know, staff that have had to be treated for PTSD. They've had just all kinds <laughs> of problems. And sometimes I feel like, you know, maybe we're shirking, but on the other hand, I feel like there ought to be, there's a need for people to come somewhere and sit down civilly and discuss issues and not, you know, not rage around. And so we've we've worked hard at that. Doesn't mean we don't care or whatever it is, but sure. you know, it's a decision that we made. Um, and I'm I just keep hoping that somehow or other. I mean, I grew up under McCarthy, Andrew, and so I remember how far out of sync everybody got. I remember the blacklist. You know, I was in I was in junior high school and high school, and he was right there in Wisconsin, right over the border, and it was an awful time. And then eventually, everybody got tired of it. You know, that kind of extremism, and it, um, you know, it just didn't hold. So the question is, can we hold up long enough under the current extremism, all amplified by social media, and misinformation, and you know, God knows what AI is going to do to all of us. Um, you know, maybe guys are going to become irrelevant. Maybe yeah, well, it's going to be uh, uh, maybe so. I I think that the internet and AI now AI, but uh, but the internet it is a massive, massive change that we still have not incorporated into our consciousness. We still don't know what it's done to us. In the same way that it would have been very hard, uh, you know, it, to to say what the printing press had done even uh, during the Reformation, when the printing press became one of the great weapons of thought of, uh, of the age, it, it's really hard to see when you're in the midst of this tumult, uh, what is going on. And that's why, that's why my, my character, Winter, he's a guy with no politics. He's given up on politics. He, he's not impressed with either side. Uh, he has, he's, you know, he's open-minded about religion, but he hasn't found any religion. He's a guy who's just kind of looking. And, um, and I think that makes him a kind of clean character because he does have this past that's questionable but at the same time he's not passing judgment on people as he goes along until he until he finds somebody who really needs judgment passed on him and so i, I think this it's you know i i still i became a mystery writer because of raymond chandler and you know his great character philip marlowe and 
famously, as I'm sure you know, but he, you know, Raymond Chandler said of his character, down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. And that's a little bit, because that's what made me a mystery writer. And because I've come to that point where you're sort of summing up and you're sort of thinking about the things that you've written about all your life. Uh, I've kind of come back to that idea. Uh, you know, these streets of ours right now, I think are tremendously mean. And I don't think any uh, individual is to blame. I think all of us uh, share in the blame. And I think all sides share in the blame. But that still raises the question of who are you going to be? And uh, and I think that's that's the kind of thing that I'm just exploring. I'm not lecturing anybody or coming to any great, you know, uh, declarations of anything. But these are that's what these stories are about. You know, they're about who are you going to be in these in these troubled times? Well, and when you have so many people who are so angry, um, you know, and then and examples of incivility and, you know, mistruth are all around us. We had an interesting time recently we took a cruise to the great lakes i mean i think here i grew up in lake michigan you know and i've traveled waters all over the world but i've never actually sailed <laughs> on the great lakes so it's terrific terrific cruise from duluth to toronto and um you know it's it's fabulous body of water the whole history everything was wonderful and when we got to canada we took the train to quebec now i have to say that being in canada for four days was an absolute revelation they are incredibly nice, incredibly well-mannered. There was not a single person who was surly. Everybody, you know, if wherever you were, in a restaurant, in a shop, in a hotel, walking on the street, whatever it was, people were delighted to see you. They were friendly. If you put a toe in the street, the traffic stopped so that nobody, I couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, it was such a refreshing change. And what was missing was all that all that anger. I mean, it's not like their politics are, you know, universally beloved. They have problems with Trudeau and, you know, problems with other stuff. But on the whole, it's a different mindset. It's not okay with them to behave badly. Yeah. I mean, we're we're doing and, something, and you know, with it's us, it seems to be okay, you know, right yeah. now to behave I mean, at our absolute worst. I, I had some friends who went to uh Hungary recently and they came back and they said, uh, same thing that you just said. It's a revelation. There's no crime. You can walk around at three o'clock in the morning. And and I think, and I know that's true. And I remember living in, in London in the 90s, the early 90s, when it, London was quite like that for a while. But we're doing something very difficult here that a lot of people aren't doing. We're doing, we, we from the very beginning have been a bunch of mutts uh, with all who come from all different places, who have all different values, and we're all trying to sort of huddle under this umbrella of our values and our creed. And nobody's even tried to do that since ancient Rome. And it, it's it's hard. You know, it's, it's hard to live in a multi-ethnic society. It's hard to live in a society where that's so big, you know, that the people of Arkansas live entirely different lives than the people in California. I mean, it's just totally different. And yet think that they have the right to judge one another and and throw slings and arrows at one another because they're in the same country. It, this is this is when people call America an experiment. They're not joking. This is like a genuine experiment. And it's difficult. It's hard. I agree. That's certainly yeah. true. Problems amplified in Russia, the size of it, or even China. But, you know, if you have if you have a totalitarian approach to government then much simpler differently yeah. anyway let's go back to the book <laughs> so Cameron Winter who we've now discovered what kind of character he is um here's about and I'm trying to remember how does he get oh he reads it doesn't he it's a news story reads it yeah. or hears it that a wealthy family in a small suburb of Chicago um have there's a fire and when they actually your opening scene is a really blistering fire scene um it turns out that the people inside the house are all dead except what is there one that survives one little boy yeah one little right. boy one little boy that comes out of the woods and appears to have escaped all this so and it it, it also comes out that his nanny because he did have a nanny managed to drop him out of a, a window but for some reason or other didn't follow him so you know what in the world was going on? These people are not dead from the fire, are they? No, they've they've been shot. It's a brutal wiping out of an entire family. And this is the kind of thing that drives uh, winter nuts, like little things like what you just said. 
why if she if she dropped him out of the window why didn't she follow him out and if he got away and it's and little things that nobody else picks up on that just just don't just can't he can't make them make sense and he has this obsession about it i think it's partly because he's trying to make sense of his own life and partly because he's trying to make sense of the world that he's living in but this is whenever these things get kind of how can i put it when it's like a microcosm of the world this thing that is full of violence, full of anger, full of hatred, but doesn't quite fit together. And he always just has to know. And he has what he repeatedly calls this is the set name of the second book in the series, A Strange Habit of Mind, which is, you know, he's not a Sherlock Holmes. He's not a, uh, a Poirot. He's not a guy who relies on, you know, the little brain cells or reason or anything. He, what he relies on is his ability to sort of disappear inside himself to let go of all of his opinions all of the things that he thinks are right or true or good or bad he just lets them all go and he just lets the facts kind of float around in his brain a little bit like furniture in a room with no gravity and somehow when the gravity comes back he understands things a lot better and it, and that you know it's 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 my way of exploring the way people really think people think that they think in mathematical terms but they actually don't uh they actually think with a kind of amalgam of reason and emotion and perception and unconscious motivations and people think that that makes them that makes their ideas random you know if you read uh like evolutionary uh scientists like Jonathan Haidt they think that our ideas our morals our conscience are all random but it's not true we're actually a machine for perceiving the world quite clearly uh when we let ourselves do it and that's kind of the thing that he's trying to reach all the time and uh, he just can't sleep until this thing that doesn't make sense falls into place right he sort of visualizes things in a way that other people can't so who dies are the the wife the husband, wife, um, the husband, the teenage daughter, daughter who um, is a fairly spectacular teenager, um, and the nanny, and the nanny, and right. the young boy, as we said, the younger son has disappeared. It also turns out that the teenage girl's boyfriend um, can't be found either. And right. So he, he, there's the question, you know, does is he the perp, or is he a victim, or you know, why is he? Why is he missing? Who in the world would have shot all of them? So when that happens, you always have to look, you have to look at all the dead people, right? You have to look at the nanny, you have to look at the parents, you have to look at the teenager, um, and eventually the missing teen, teenage boy, and try to figure out, you know, who who would have done this deed and whether one of them was responsible. So you have to explore all that um, in order to to go anywhere with it um i really hated the fact that you killed the girl i'm just <laughs> i didn't kill her wait a minute i well, you, know, you, know you can't I mean. blame me barbara Jeez. listen you know what you're the puppet master in this show so don't give me that uh, but i i was i mean i understand that she had to die but you know what andrew really good mysteries you're born the victim you know you have to really care about the victim they can't just be cardboard and i thought you know she was really such a such a terrific character alive that it was a real wrench that she you know, was killed. You know, I, I worked in in Hollywood for a while, and and in Hollywood, you you can't you can sell a detective TV show, but you can't sell a detective movie. And I would say, well, why can't you sell a detective movie? And they would always say the same thing. They would always say, because a detective story is not really about the detective. It's about the people in the story. And I've tried very hard to make that true of these books. I want each one to be a complete story into itself, unto itself that Cameron Winter travels through. And so, uh, you know, as you say, these characters, you know, I, I don't think you would say, I, I, I certainly would argue that they're not at all cardboard characters. They have very deep, um, complex and uh, nuanced lives, and that's what makes their death so tragic. I I always hated the fact that people get shot. You know, even even in I I like Agatha Christie. I think her books are really enjoyable. But I've always hated the fact that you don't you just don't care. I mean, you do not care about the person who dies because it's just a you know a, a stick figure basically. And that's what I'm trying to avoid. I mean, these are people that I want you to be sorry they're dead. I want you to be you know I want you to miss the life they didn't live. All right. I don't agree with you that all of them are, but you know, that's, that's the difference between Christie and Sayers. And that's the difference between Chandler and Hammett. 
Mm -hmm. You know, I find that readers fall into those two camps, you know, Um, people really like Sayers because the characters and so forth are far more fleshed out, but the plots don't necessarily make a lot of sense. Chandler's the same, you know, you can't, you have to love the characters, but even Chandler didn't know, (laughs) you know, (laughs) a famous story, you know, he didn't have any idea. And, you know, I'm a little worried because um, I just read again yesterday that there's this, do do you know who the Reverend Boulder was in Victorian England? I seem to be the only person who- Oh, oh, wait, the the censor, the guy who boulderized things? Yes, yes. There's a verb called boulderized based on his last name, B-O-W, Boulder. And, you know, he thought he took it upon himself to expurgate Shakespeare and, you know, all kinds of texts with words he found offensive. And, and you know, for a long time, at least when I was a student, everybody regarded that with derision and contempt that he would do that. And guess what? Now that's happening. And, you know, they're rewriting even Christie, but, you know, Roald Dahl, um, Georgette Hare, because she has an anti-Semitic thing they, they claim. Anyway, all of this somewhat radical, whatever, is bringing us back to the age of Boulder. And I've been trying to figure out if it were even possible to do that with Chandler, because he has all kinds of offensive language and offensive stuff and all, but it wouldn't even be Chandler if you tried to go in and change it for some modern sensibility. I worry about it, that that might, you know, might happen. There's so much that's offensive about this. And the first thing that's really offensive about it is the idea that these clowns sitting around with their superior morality that no one's ever thought of, no one's ever been a good person before until them, they have come along and they now see all the injustices of the world. No one ever thought of it before. They are going to fix all these people, go back into the past and fix all these people. When these are extraordinarily some of them great artists. Raymond Chandler was one of the best writers America ever produced. P.G. Woodhouse they've gone after, who's one of the greatest writers anybody ever produced. And they're going to go back. And what what, what great writers do is they give you a picture of people in their time exactly. that, that informs you in your time because it tells you what's permanent. It tells you what is passing. It tells you how culture interacts with the eternal human spirit. It tells you all these things through the gift of their particular muse and their particular vision. And that these bozos are going to come in and tell P.G. Woodhouse or Raymond Chandler or Ian Fleming or any of these people what they should have seen when they saw what they saw is so offensive. And the idea that they have developed a moral system that is so much better than anyone has ever had before is just absurd. And I always tell them, you know, every time you want to tear down somebody's statue, just remember your statue is just 20 years down the line from being torn up because people are going to think the same kinds of things then. This is this is one of the saddest parts of our society right now, this notion that there is a, a an absolute moral sense that is uh, available to us that makes it possible to condemn, cancel, and destroy the lives and work and uh, careers of people we disagree with. And I I just find this incredibly uh, terrible. And it's comical to me in this grim way that now that people are on the street uh, marching for the murderers of, of Hamas and protesting in favor of the murderers of Hamas, suddenly they don't want to be canceled. Suddenly they think it's just a terrible idea that anyone should hold them accountable for their opinions. Well, I'm willing to listen to anybody's opinion and, and I can tell them what I think as long as I can tell them what I think. And what we've tried to develop, and it's just awful, is this idea that one side should be able to speak and the other side is somehow unredeemable. And I think if you do not have all of the records of who people were created by artists, this is what artists do. They give you a vision of their moment. If you don't have all those records, you have to learn. It's like, it would be like tearing up all the mathematics textbooks. You just have to learn it all over again. And I'm afraid we may get to that point. Well, I'm sorry to see the Balderize is a real thing again. Um, And, you know, if you have... (sighs) We never seem to learn from history. I mean, it's perfectly clear, you know, if you look at Hitler, he he never figured out that Napoleon made an error marching to Russia. Um, you know, people, I mean, even people who you would think would know better can't seem to learn from history. But if we erase history, if we distort it, um, then we have no chance whatsoever of learning from it. So, you know, I'm keeping a little list of the, ex, you know, the new expurgated texts so that I can order the old 
unexpurgated text yes. to sell at the store or just quit selling the book, you know, because I'm not willing to do that. Um, I'm, I am deeply offended by this whole idea, as you say, that, you know, revisionism in the light of whatever is current is is all right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, well, good for you, I'm glad you're doing that. I'm glad you're doing. I, I mean, I I personally went out and ordered all my favorite movies on DVD because I don't want people like messing with them later on. That's a really good idea. By the way, if you did that, did you watch the DVD with the outtakes for The Big Sleep? Did you, did you buy the the full one? The the Bogart version? Um, yeah, but there is there is one where the scenes that were deleted is are included. No, I have not. Well, so let cool. me tell you what, Andrew, talking about storytelling, you want to do that because I have watched it. And if you remember, towards the end of the big sleep, there's some big holes in the movie. Yeah. You can't figure out what happened. Well, here's what happened. I read this because I read a biography of Lauren Bacall. She was new to Hollywood. Um, there was the whole romance thing going on. And movies can only be so many minutes, right? So her agent and whatever all got together and said she needed more FaceTime in the movie. And so <laughs> they cut out, which is now in the DVD, they cut out the scene that is crucial to understanding the plot in favor of her having more FaceTime with Bogart. And That's it, hilarious. I didn't know it's that. It's revelatory to see, yeah. you know, to watch the thing and then watch the cut scene and recognize that if it had gone into the movie, the movie would have made a great deal more sense. So, you know, that wasn't censorship. Um, well, in a way it was, but a different kind of thing. But um, I really urge you, since you're a Chandler fan, to see if you can yeah. chase down the DVD with the, you know, oh, the uncut scenes. I definitely will. I think that's hilarious. Yeah, I think it that's is hilarious. hilarious. Yeah. Rob and yeah. I watched it and I was just electrified. I was like, oh, <laughs> that's what was missing all this time. <laughs> you know, whatever. Right. Anyway, um, I have to say that the other part, it seems to me, of the equation in a really good thriller is that you have to mourn the victim and in many cases empathize with the villain. And I'm going to tell you straight up, Andrew, I do not empathize with your bad guy. No, that's interesting. In this I book. really don't. I, I just can't do that. And I think that's a... Well, don't give it away. Don't give it away. For that reason, <laughs> unfortunately, I can't tell you, right. I can't tell you why I'm saying that, but just when you read it, if you find yourself really questioning what has happened there with the bad guy, you're on my team. <laughs> no, I, I was, I had a lot of sympathy for the bad guy. I felt I had a lot of sympathy for the entire town, which seemed to me to have been abandoned by authorities from the top down. And mm -hmm. so that at, at every level, people were being betrayed by the people above them. And, uh, and so I had a lot of, I, even though there was a, there's a lot of sin and malfeasance and crime in the, in the story, it is the story of people being exposed for what they are. Uh, I found that I had a lot of sympathy, but then I, I do feel that way a, a lot of times. I mean, there is, there is a level of evil where obviously you can't empathize or you're just destroying yourself. But I, even, even when I see genuine evil, I almost feel like a person's heart has been stolen, you know, by, has been destroyed. Uh, evil gets into us through our broken places, you know, and I always feel some sympathy for people, even though, uh, e even though ultimately they have to be punished, they have to be stopped, they, you know, and they have to be, and justice has to be done. Um, I, I always find it almost impossible not to sympathize with, with people. Uh, and, and so I, I think that's helped me write the characters. I'm surprised to hear you say that in this particular case, but I don't want to say why. Sorry, I, I really, I really did. What I really was annoyed about was that nobody noticed what was going on, and mm, it yes. had, perhaps, well, that's you know, that's that's what happens throughout the book. I think. In well, that's true. But I don't want to I mean, say anymore. No, <laughs> we can't. We can't spoil this. But I'm just going on record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <All right. laughs> it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing, you know, to actually have a discussion with an author. You know, thank you, Andrew. Where I can, I can say that. Uh, because, you know, that's part of being a critical reader, you know, is that sometimes you do have caveats here and there. Uh, and yeah, and it, well, well, it's interesting. It's interesting, too, when you when you have to kill a character and you, you know, I, you never want to kill like any of the nice people in your stories, but sometimes that's the, what the story does. And then you get these angry letters from, from readers, you know, how could you do that? And you know that if you hadn't done it, the book would not have been any good. And, and so, like you know, it's, it's a very it's very difficult because people, of course, don't want to see their hero die or whatever. Uh, but 
sometimes that's what the story demands. And if you're going to tell an honest story, you have to do it. And people know when you haven't told an honest story, so they catch you when you don't do it, but they get angry at you when you do do it. So it's just like sort of a, uh, a danger of the trade, you know? Well, that's really true. And yeah. well, I won't say anymore. Um, right. <laughs> but anyway, um, there's, there is, um, the British it's often said are obsessed with class and that's what they write about and the Americans are obsessed with race and that's what we write about. And in this community, there is a um, less privileged section of the community. And not surprisingly, many of them are immigrants, many of them are Hispanic or whatever. And so you do end up writing about, you know, in the course of this book, you do contrast the people who live in the beautiful mansions and yes. with the people living in the trailer parks, you know, down the way. When Rob and I were invited, we, we were invited as guests of the Sheikh to the Sharjah Book Festival some years mm -hmm. ago. Maybe it was like 2016. And and we went because I thought we'd never been to any of the um those little, you know, Arab communities along the Persian Gulf and so forth. And to be honest, we had a chance to then fly you know, first class on Emirates, thanks to the chef. So I figured, I mean, the shake, I thought, you know, can't pass that up. Uh, but I was really interested in, in going and seeing what it was like. And what it was like was an even more um, obvious than in your book. There was a group of rich Sharjah citizens. Then there was an entire underclass. And I can't remember whether they were Tamil from Sri Lanka, or whether they were from Southern India. But anyway, they were the, the working class and they lived in very poor accommodations and you know they worked for very little money and on and on and on. And it was weird to sit down by, by the artificial lake in some version of an American restaurant, there was even a Starbucks, and watch, you know, these very wealthy women with their Cadillac baby strollers and all the rest of it, you know, the men were, it was Friday night when we were there, the men were in the mosque and the women were strolling on the water, you know, with all of that. And to recognize that it was totally artificial, you know, that it was being supported by this whole underclass, all the work and all the rest of it. And the other thing that was so weird was there was absolutely no, because the war in, Iraq, I think, was, I think it was Iraq, maybe Syria. Anyway, what, right next to them was this tremendous war going on, and yet there was absolutely zero sense of any kind of war hmm. or any kind of support, you know, for fellow citizens and or subjects, whatever you want to call it. It was the strangest experience. Yeah, it's a very foreign area. I mean, it's, I've been, I've been to Africa and I've been to the Middle East and, uh, and Afghanistan, and I have to say that the 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 foreignness is intense. Even even when you're in Israel, which is run much more like an, a a democratic country, and so it, it's familiar to us, and it's at least in its political structures, you just feel like you're very far away. And I I truly truly believe that our ignorance about how other people live, not just in other countries, but even in our own country, is. Uh, it's staggering, you know. It's staggering. I, I hear people. I mean, I when I when I was growing up, I, I became a, a kind of a drifter. I want. I actually admired drifters in fiction, and I wanted to drift around the country. And I I lived. I grew up on the East Coast, and I hitchhiked and drove and took buses, and I slept in hobo camps, and I met all kinds of people. And one of the things that occurred to me pretty early on, after starting to travel around, is that we on the East Coast knew nothing about the rest of the country. And and the people on the West Coast who made the movies knew nothing about the rest of the country. And I would meet people all the time and I would suddenly think like, wait, these people are not stupid. These are not bigots. They're not, uh, you know, small minded. They're not they're not intolerant. They were far, far more expansive and free thinking and intellectually sound than a lot of the people I knew in my very sophisticated East Coast world and the sophisticated West Coast world, which I also came to know. And I, and that was a shocking revelation to me. And I've never forgotten it. And I've never tr tried. I've always tried to write the people in what they call 
with incredible uh, obnoxiousness in flyover country. I've tried to write the people of America as as I've met them then and as I still meet them now today. When I when I left the country, uh, I lived in England for seven years. I remember a reporter calling me up and saying, do, do you miss America? And I said, you know, I, I miss fat guys in checkered shirts more than I miss any just about anything else. You know, I miss guys who go hunting. I miss guys who speak bluntly. Uh, it's not that it's not New York I miss. It's not L.A. It's it's the rest of the country, and I, that has remained true. And I, I just try to capture some of that in everything I write because it just it drives me nuts the uh, the superiority of the superior uh, and the and the absolute small mindedness of the rich and educated classes. You know, when 9-11 happened, I was in Washington, D.C. at the first National Book Festival, which mm -hmm. I helped organize. And I had flown. We all flew out on Sunday night. And, of course, Monday was 9-11. Um, and so there I was in Virginia. And I had gotten a rental car um, at the airport in order to go visit people. And then the television came on and, you know, the towers fell and all the planes stopped in the whole bit. And there I was in Virginia. So I called Avis and they said to me, you have the car? And I said, yes. And they said, just keep it, they said, and drive home, which I thought was amazing. They never even charged for it. You know, it was mm -hmm. astonishing. Oh. But I deliberately plotted a way home that would take me right through the middle of America, through the Midwest. And I was sort of in a hurry. I ate Every meal I had was at McDonald's or a fast food thing. I stayed in a Holiday Inn in Memphis. You know, I stayed in a similar, you know, maybe it was the Howard Johnson's bag. Remember Hojo? I probably stayed in a Howard Johnson's somewhere in, I don't know, Tucumcari, New Mexico or something. But I wanted to be in the heartland of America at that time. I really did. Um, and, you know, of course, I grew up in the heartland of America, so not too surprising. My husband grew up on Park Avenue, mm. and he said for many, many years, he and the people he knew could look, you know, could look west, and it was like there was a wall over the Hudson, and all they could see beyond it was California. That's <laughs> like the New Yorker. Remember that old New Yorker cover? That's yeah. right, yeah, yeah, but I mean, and, and so, yeah, I do think, I've always been sort of surprised that there are so few Midwest Chicago mystery writers. I mean, we think Chicago, we think Sarah Paretsky, you know, or there's a new guy named Ian K. Smith. And um, uh, Michael Harvey is a, you know, wonderful, talented guy who hasn't written a, a novel in quite a long time. But for whatever reason, you know, there, there's practically nobody from Indiana or Iowa or Illinois or whatever. That's right. There's a lot of people in Minnesota, which I find really interesting, but maybe it's the climate. But anyway, a lot of people in Minnesota, but very, very few in the in that whole sort of Midwestern area. I mean, we were in Cleveland as one of the stops, Detroit and Cleveland, which is one reason I wanted to take that trip because I'd never been to Cleveland. Mm. And I think I've only been to Detroit in the airport. And it was amazing to see them. And I realized that the only person I knew who had written about Cleveland was Les Roberts. And, you know, aside from Elmore Leonard, there's a wonderful guy named uh, Stephen Mac Jones that writes about Detroit and Laura Nesselman, who's written about Detroit right. um, for a long time. But there are, you know, you can't, you can't come up with a handful of writers who are using, you know, these Midwestern cities or Nebraska or Kansas or whatever, you know, yeah. a whole chunk of the country that doesn't seem to attract um, crime writing. I'm not speaking for other genres because I'm not that familiar with the rest no, of but it. it's but it's absolutely true. I, I mean, C.J. Box does a great job. He's I, I like his stuff. And he's where's where's his stuff in Wyoming? Is like I can't remember. C.J. Box. Oh, he's in Wyoming. Yeah, well, no, Wyoming. Yeah. Definitely in a in a small yeah. town in Wyoming. But that's that's more western. I'm talking yeah. about the the, yeah, Midwest. But the Midwest. Yeah, you know, they're, no, they're, you're right. They're actually, Nevada doesn't have very many. Although there's a new guy named Bruce Borgos who wrote an absolutely kick-ass debut that we. I can't remember the title, but his last name is Borgos, B-O-R-G-O-S. Really amazing novel set in Nevada. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we don't even have that many here in Arizona, and the ones we have are terrific, so we're really lucky there. You know, we, yeah. have, we have Diana from, you know, Outlander. Um, we had Stephanie Meyer of Twilight. Right. But they're just, 
it's surprising how writing all seems to sort of cluster along the coast, as you well, say. But, but remember, no remember no too, world. that the publishers are on the coast. I mean, that's that that may have something to do with it, too. It may be harder for people to get to them well, and maybe. harder for them to recognize good good writing when they see it. You know, I think that, well, that that's an, in, an interesting thing COVID about the movies. Kind of changing, you know, kind of changing that doesn't really make sense anymore for people have to be located. But I also think that New York and Los Angeles are kind of the universal cities of America. You know, if you want to write well, a crime novel, they, every, most most people have some acquaintance with New York and the high spots and, you know, and Los Angeles. But, um, you know, that, that probably has a lot to do with it if you if you think about it. But yeah, I'm sure there's a disproportionate number of published authors who live in New York. Yeah, no, I bet. And that's where the publishers are and, and LA true. is where the movies are. So what are your future plans for Cameron Winter? This is book three. Um, yeah. it, I will give you this spoiler. He survives the book. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, there is a book. Have, you know, you there could have book made a trilogy and just that was it, right? No, there's a book four on the way. And, um, and you know, I, I'm really, the thing that I'm really excited about with Cameron Winter is he actually is making progress in his journey through himself. He's not one of these guys who's going to be dealing with the same problems over and over again. Uh, he actually is finding out things about himself that change him. And I, and I really do think that I'm, I'm hoping the books will go, I'm hoping the series will go 10 books. And I, I think that the second half of that series is going to be very different from the first half because he is beginning to crack. He's beginning to find things about himself that he can ways in which he can grow and change. And I think that that's kind of beautiful. And it's also uh, interesting because it's going to pose new challenges for the later books in the series. So it's been really interesting to watch. I mean, it's I like the fact that the, each book has a story that's unique to itself and deals with characters who are different and outside of him. But at the same time, he is this thread that connects them all together. And he is actually on a journey that is uh, changing. I've, He's I've never- actually on a quest, which is yeah. the last form of storytelling, really. The, exactly, a exactly. Quest to discover who he is, um, yep. which I think. Yep. And so it's great to know that you, we, your readers, um, have more books to look forward to. Patrick, why don't you pop up from your white screen there? This is my theatrical moment. And <laughs> see if we have questions for Andrew, if you have comments that you uh, would like to make. You haven't had a chance to read my arc, so you can't disagree with my with my comments here, but no, I'd give like it to you. To. I'll hand it He's over. He's totally wrong, Patrick, just, just to alert you. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting about... Um, the, the region, you know, the, the, what am I trying to say? The different regions in this country, I think are, are at risk of losing their accents, of losing their individuality. When you have the same, you know, Ross and Target and Starbucks on every corner in America, um, and we're losing our individuality, you know, and, and I don't know. I, do you, I, would you agree with that, Andrew? Or I, I think it's it's one of the very few things that the genius founders of this country did not foresee was mass media, and it has taken away people's accents. Uh, you know, my my father was a DJ in New York, and he grew up in Baltimore, and he grew up with a Baltimore accent, and he was famous. He was quite famous in in New York for his capacity to do accents and voices. He was a brilliant voice man, as they say in the business. And the only accent he couldn't do was a Baltimore accent because he had worked so hard to get rid of it uh, so he could speak in that universal tone. And when we were growing up, me and my three brothers, uh, when we were growing up, they, my parents would have us speak because we grew up on, on Long Island, or as they say on Long Island, Long Island. And, and they didn't want us to talk like that. And they would teach us to say, you know, my family is in a class by itself instead of my family is in a class by itself. And so all of these people trained in this bland, empty accent are on TV talking all the time. And it, it has had this effect of, of kind of homogenizing the entire country. And I, yes, I think it's bad. I think it's, it's a real shame. There's no reason, uh, as I said before, there's no reason why someone in Arkansas should have the same values, accent, or outlook as somebody in LA, and there's no reason why they should hate each other for being from so far apart. When I when I lived in England, I used to have to explain to people, um, Douglas, um, the guy who wrote the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, Douglas Adams, uh, I, I knew him in the for a few months before he died, and he, he had moved to America, where I was living in Santa Barbara. 
And I said to him, how do you like it here? And he said, I can't stand the news blackout because we had no news about anywhere else. And I said, you know, you have to understand that San Francisco and New York are as far away from one another as Britain and Australia, you know, like we, this is a big, big country. This is not a place where we all know each other and we all get along. So it's actually uh, a big country with a lot of different places. And yeah, I think this is a real, it's a real sad effect of mass media that we're all being homogenized. And we're all losing our sense of humor. It's even true on a micro level because, you know, even neighborhoods in like you drive around Phoenix, neighborhoods are homogenized. Yeah. You know, yeah. it used to be that, that neighborhoods had really distinctive individual characteristics. When I was a kid, Chicago was the largest Polish city in the world. Hmm. It was bigger than Warsaw. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, um, and so you knew when you were in, in, you know, Polish Chicago. And now, now, you know, even cities, smaller places are being homogenized. Yeah. And that, and that has to do with Patrick was saying, like with corporations, too, that, you know, there's no longer a New York coffee shop. Everything's Starbucks. Right, right. Yeah, and you know, in the West, you know, we're all we're all kind of slipping into this incredibly, maybe unhealthy, uh, fast-paced world. You know, I mean, the the West used, you know, it used to, and I think some parts of it still do, obviously, but have a much slower, a different pace. You know, I remember when I went to New York for the first time; it was a total culture shock you know, um, for me, you know, going to with my, my folks, we went to the Carnegie Deli and I'm like, why is this guy sitting like right next to me? That was very foreign. You know, it was quite yeah. a culture shock and you're dropped into this kind of whirlwind life. And, uh, and now it seems like perhaps technology has forced that on us all, you know, whether we're ready for it or not. Um, yeah. I'm it, not sure. I haven't really thought about that, but it just kind of occurred to me. Oh, here's a footnote. I was sitting in my office today trying to figure out how to finish up our November calendar and get it all organized. And I got three emails from three different publishers in New York who by November 14th want me to fill out their summer event grids telling them what we would like to do between June and August 2024. And you know what? I don't care. I mean, I, I, not only do I not care, but how would I even know? You know, got to get through November. No kidding. You know, so I'm I'm actually, I'm just not going to do it this time. I'll see what effect that is. But I thought, you know, I can barely survive where we are. And I certainly don't want to look ahead to 2024. And a huge push from corporate um, sales and from, you know, technology and all is that everybody is working farther and farther ahead. And, you know, the fashion industry, if you want to buy something now, for fall or for winter it's too late because they're already <laughs> pulling out the spring you know the spring fashions and publishing's going the same way yeah. i find it you know it, it, there's just this constant acceleration where you yeah. can't stay in the moment it's speeding us up to the point where it's really hard to enjoy the moment yeah that i mean i think i think this this being hooked in and you know uh in communication all the time it really is having effects you know i'm sure some of them are good but a lot of them are a pain in the neck yeah yeah i, don't, I hate the, the the effect that like i feel like i have adhd now i feel like, <laughs> yes, our, yeah. entire, I feel like our entire culture has adhd yep. you and, can't uh, really you it's really hard to sit down and read a book which is a you know a relatively slow and solipsist experience because your damn phone is right there all the time yeah, yeah. As a recovering English major, you know, I used to love to sit down for four or five hours, you know, and 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 read. And it's it's really hard to get it's reading is serious business, you know, and yeah. uh, it's hard to and I see it myself, you know, I see my own now, inability I, to do it and I hate it. And I, I, I completely myself. agree with this. And, and the other one that gets me is the, you know, I've, I've been an outdoorsman all my life. I spent a lot of time in the woods. I spent a lot of time, you know, hiking and climbing and all this stuff. And I, in the old days, you didn't have a phone with you. If you fell down and hurt yourself, you were in big trouble. And now I can't go around the corner without thinking, well, what happens if I get a flat tire? You know, when I, shouldn't I take my phone with me? <laughs> so, so I think it's, it's made ridiculous. us more fearful. I yeah, do. I yeah, think more anxious, more yeah. fearful, and far less self-reliant mm -hmm. than we used to be. Yeah, no, there's no question about it. There's no question about it. Do we have any actual questions, Patrick? <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, well, folks are chiming in a little bit about about writers, you know, from 
the different parts of the country, you know, regional places. Um, but let's see. Okay. Yeah, Renee would like to know, how did you come up with Winter? Was he based on anyone or a combination of people you knew? No, he was actually kind of, you know, uh, my pal who you all know, Otto Penzler, he called me up during the lockdowns and he said, would you write a Christmas mystery? And I had had this idea for a Christmas story in my head for 30 years and I had never been able to figure out how to get to the, I knew what the ending was, but I couldn't figure out how to get to it. But when he asked me, obviously, that was kind of inspiring. I thought, well, let me see if I can figure this stupid story out because I've had to haunting me all these years. And for me, the whole key to every story is you've got to find the guy who has to be in that story. You know, it's very, very different whether, you know, the guy who's fighting a dragon is Frodo or Superman, right? It, it makes a big difference. That changes the entire nature of the story. And so this guy kind of grew out of the story in a way. He was the perfect guy for the story. But at the same time, the minute I've, I've never written a series more than three or four books before. I never wanted to. Uh, I always felt that a story began was an, a character arc and it began with one place. And when he got to the other, the story was over. And I never had a character who enchanted me enough to make me want to write uh, a series. But the minute Winter came into my mind, I thought, oh, wow, there he is. You know, there's this guy who is in some way representative to me of everything we're all going through in this moment, this weird, uh, really different moment. And I thought like, it would just be so fascinating to watch him go through a series of stories. And of course we didn't know whether the book was going to do well or not, but happily the Christmas book sold very well. And so did the, the first two books in the series have been both been bestsellers and uh, hopefully this one too. And it's just been a very, uh, a, a wonderful opportunity to take this guy who grew out naturally out of that story. He was the perfect person for that story, but has so much, I think, to say about where we are in the moment. So that's that's how I kind of, that's how he kind of came to be. He grew up organically out of the first story I told. What was the book that you were discussing a little bit earlier that was going to be published in an expurgated edition? I missed that. I must have oh, it was an article in the New York Times about a George Ed Hare book called The Grand Sophie, which oh. has a submitted character in it. And um, the Times was, like me, distressed that anybody would want to go in there. And and it was a British writer hired to write introductions, if I remember the article right, but I may not, um, who, was, who quit over it, you know, wasn't prepared to um, to do that. And um, I feel very strongly that you can't go back and, you know, edit. We like, we like to sanitize our past, don't we? That's right. Yeah. I'm just I'm just not okay with that, you know. Um, and the thing is, I think that we are then dumbing people down. Basically, we're saying to them, you're not smart enough to know that this, you know, was a, a past attitude or, you know, whatever. Well, and who I are mean, the arbiters of that get to decide this? Right. I mean, this dreadful fear that you're poisoning a mind, but you know, that also indicates that the mind itself isn't very strong, that you know, that your target mind is not very strong. And I really resent that. And that other people have something to say about what an artist writes. I mean, artists have muses, the muses tell them what to write, they write what the muse tells them to write. It's none of your business. If you don't like it, don't buy it, don't read it. If if you're going to publish it, publish it as it is. I, I really think uh it's it, like i said before I, I can't tell you how offensive i find it and how self-righteous yeah well, Paul, ulysses trial you know the the james joyce ulysses trial was so funny and is a great example of that nobody really understanding what they were objecting to yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. and we've lost our sense of humor too which is uh that's a lot of it very yep. important you know you mentioned yep. pg woodhouse yeah funniest books i've ever read like, my, wonderful. The Coming of Gauff was my all-time favorite, G-O-W-F. Yeah, he I, wrote this hilarious book about the origin of golf, which just, you know. Is, I, I used to read, I don't sleep very much, and I used to read them at night, and my wife actually woke up one night and, and hit me over the head with a pillow because I kept waking her up laughing so hard. I, was just, I just could not stop laughing. I know. Bland, Blanding's Castle books. And, yeah, yeah, I know. Jeeves and, you know, all of it. Yeah. Bertie Wooster yeah. and Jesus Smith, and Smith, all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's hilarious. I think part of it is that we've we've kind of lost our sense of humor. Um, Absolutely. Many yeah. of us have lost our sense of humor in the face of all what's going on. I've also, to some degree, lost my sense of humanity. I won't go into it, but <laughs> increasingly, I, I will say this, that I was really happy 
that the guy in Maine who shot everybody shot himself. So we didn't have to live through some long agonizing, you know, discussion and treatment and trial and the whole bit. And, you know, I I find that my sense of empathy is being somewhat shorted. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. I yeah. I, empathy I mean, for empathy for him or for no, for him. I mean, you know, I'm I'm sorry that it all happened, but I don't want to live in the aftermath of it. You know, at least if he's gone, we can clean it up. Yeah, one of my brothers once said, it's too bad these guys always shoot themselves last. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you could sort of say that. But I mean, there was a time when I would have been appalled at the idea. And hmm. now I find myself thinking that, you know, it's efficient. Yeah, <laughs> there, there we go, you know, rotting away here, my inner self. Right. Well, if there are no more questions, Andrew, thank you very much. If you want to stay on for a second, I will tell you not on camera what it is I found difficult. But, okay. Yeah. Okay. We can do that. Right. That'll drive everybody watching it absolutely nuts, right? But too bad. Read the read the book and work it out for yourself. So thank you very much, everybody, for joining us tonight. And let me wish you all a very happy holiday season if we don't see you again. And signed copies are on their way to us. Bye. All right. So. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.